there's always so many learnings along the way. I mean, I try to balance. Nobody would ever accuse me of lacking confidence, but I also think I balance that with a high dose of humility, right? I always say, you know, you don't have to be an expert in everything. You just need to, to know an expert in everything. And I think one of the things that has served us well, and it doesn't stop today, right? It's constantly what we're doing is we just try to surround ourselves with the smartest people in different areas. You're listening to Hawk Talk a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Carter Reem. How are you doing, man? Good. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So, got to kick it off. I assume the day you're born, you come out, you, you know, decide you're going to start an alcohol company and start doing venture investments from day one. And that's just how life kicked off, right? <laughs> Isn't that how it's always yeah, totally. the case? Exactly. We're all right, born right into it. So yeah, take me back. Like, where were you born? Where are you from? Yeah, I grew up in a little town of a thousand people, oh, about an hour outside of Chicago. So dirt road, one four-way stop, no stoplights. So uh, yeah, country bumpkin. Yeah, it resonates. Nice, man. And so what were you born into? Were your parents working you know, in that small town where you, what, tell me about kind of the environment you yeah, came yeah. into. My mom actually went to Columbia Business School, but was a stay-at-home mom, or as she says, uh, CEO of the household, nice. which she believes she got the hardest job. My dad ran a company in uh, Chicago at the time, but really just wanted us to grow up kind of very normal. So we, you know, went to a public high school about 25 minutes from where we lived. And uh, we were fortunate. I tell people we had the ultimate upbringing, which was we had to work hard every day. And and that's what we've done every day since we were born. But if we worked hard, we would achieve. And uh, I never take that for granted because uh, not everyone's that fortunate. So we're incredibly fortunate with respect to that. Those are honestly wise words that you just skimmed through right there. It's like, I totally agree with you that like, People love to say they're successful because of hard work. And like, while hard work is an important factor, the ability to actually produce with that hard work is something that's overlooked a lot. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, I, I always, you know, there's certain people that are successful in spite of, you know, how they were raised or what they were given in the early days. I never take it for granted that, again, the easiest thing I had to do is just wake up every day and work hard. And if I did that, and again, I never has lost on me that there's plenty of people that wake up in the same surroundings and don't work hard every day. But it is a pretty damn good feeling to know if you wake up every day and work hard, you know, you'll achieve and have success. Yeah, there's a feeling of control, like a, a satisfaction as well as like a security of that. Like, you know, that if you you can not work hard and you might not achieve, but if you want to achieve, you just got to work hard is like when you have that ability. It's awesome. So when did that start? Like how old? Like, tell me about like young childhood. Were you like the young entrepreneur that at four years old, you were trying to figure out how to make money or like where, where did it kick off? Yeah, yeah, no, uh, I played a ton of sports growing up. I'm sure we'll talk about it. But you know, people are always asking how the heck have my brother and I been business partners for 15 years, you know, they're always kind of intrigued by the fact that we're siblings and such good partners. But I I describe it as, you know, we just played sports growing up our entire life. He was a few years older. So he was always the best player on the team. And I was typically the second best player on the team. And so one, I think it led to two things. One, it was that sense of achievement, right? When you think about being an athlete, it's always, you know, I got to work on my left foot this summer, or I'm going to work on my jump shot this summer, whether that was soccer or basketball, but it's always that continuous drive to kind of get better and keep elevating. 
And then in our particular case, you know, we were never the, we never had that older brother and younger brother relationship, right? My brother, when I was in eighth grade, was taking me to high school parties. That is very atypical, yeah. right? Not many sophomores are like, let me go grab my eighth grade brother and bring him to the and party. The age, but, uh, what is the age uh, difference? Uh, about two and a half years. We're in grade difference. Was it two years or three? Two, uh, two years. So two yeah. years. So, um, yeah. And so we just always had that mentality when we were playing sports, you know. I would pass to him and he would try to score or he would pass to me and I would try to score. And so we've always just had this kind of very collaborative nature. And so I think that's what serves us fast forward to today of kind of being business partners. No, that's awesome. You came with that. And so when did that, was that from like early, early, early childhood? You guys were always just best friends in that sense? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. A combination of just kind of the upbringing and then a lot of time on the basketball court, the tennis court, the soccer field, whatever it was. But, you know, we just grew up playing a ton of sports. Got it. And were your parents big athletic people too? Like, where did that come from? Like, where was that push for sports? Yeah, my dad was, uh, he was a starting member of the Yale basketball team. I think it was like 52, you know, like, uh, yeah, 52 years ago. That was the last one that got to the final four before Yale made an incredible run uh, in the NCAA tournament about two years ago. So my dad was a big athlete and kind of just instilled it in us and uh, just what we enjoyed growing up. Nice, got it. And so through that childhood, like what was, when someone would say like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Was it, you wanted to be a basketball star? Like where were you coming from at that young age? I could say six, eight. It's funny. I always hear, I'm always very jealous. I hear stories about people that, you know, when they were eight years old, they said they wanted to be a fireman or play in the NBA. We were never like that. We just kind of always wanted to kind of keep moving forward and achieve. But I don't, you know, when I think about our, our, my first job out of college, it was investment banker at Goldman Sachs. It was never like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be an investment banker one day. (laughs) Or I'm going to be an entrepreneur one day. We didn't kind of have that type of foresight. It was just, let's keep doing what we're yeah. doing and see where, see where we go. Yeah, I think, again, though, I think there's a lot of brilliance to that. I've found throughout my career when I get too proactive, as a kid, dreaming is not a big deal. But when you get a little older and start actually pursuing it, when you kind of deal with what's right in front of you, you end up accomplishing a lot more, I've found, than when you're trying to look 10 years ahead and to predict where the world is going. Like you can get lucky, yeah. but you can 99% of the time get unlucky in that situation. So that makes sense. Yeah. And when did, like, I'm, I am actually curious though. So did you went to business school before going to Goldman, I assume? I just went to, so we, my brother ended up going to play soccer at Columbia. I was choosing between Harvard and Columbia and a draw of New York City, the draw of my brother, I ended up at Columbia. Yeah. And so, you know, I always say I kind of didn't know what I wanted to do after college. I always make the joke that the easiest job I ever got was being an investment banker at Goldman. And not that it's an easy job to get, but, you know, you go on the website, you submit your resume. Uh, at the time, I'd done really well at Columbia, got a summer intern and did well. And next thing you know, I was a full time at Goldman. So uh, that's how I ended I'm up. I'm curious, how did that arise? Like, it, was it just because you were surrounded, but you were in New York, you were surrounded by people interested in the investment banking world. It was just kind of sign of the times or did you actually have have an, a real interest in it. Yeah, I think probably just a sign of the times. My dad obviously comes from a financial background, having run a company. And, uh, you know, he was a proponent that, you know, it was kind of good training, right? Go do that for two to three years, and then it will open up a lot of doors to what you want to do next. Yep. And then obviously being in a New York City, also, when you think about 20 years ago, that was kind of the job to get. It's kind of what you knew. Like, I wouldn't even know what an entrepreneur was or how to be an entrepreneur at that time 20 years ago. Now, that would be very different if I was graduated college in May. But it was just kind of a, a very clear path as a stepping stone to whatever came that next. makes sense. And so did you know going into, you obviously said it was a two to three year stint, which is what you expected, it sounds like. 
did you have an idea of what you wanted to do after or you were like i'll figure it out while i'm there yeah once again didn't have the foresight yep. just kind of figured out it as we went i was on the deal team that took kkr public the famous private equity firm and so uh, that was kind of one of those landmark deals and spent most of my time on that deal. And so it was a clear path forward. I was private equity. I was debating between KKR or moving to the West Coast. I ended up taking a job at Oak Tree Capital, the largest private equity firm in LA. And then conversely, my brother was on the deal team. He was also an investment banker at Goldman for a 32-year-old about to IPO a billion-dollar company. And now it seems like every 32-year-old is about to IPO a billion-dollar company, but that was not the case 15, 17 years yeah. ago. That 32-year-old was Kevin Plank, and that company was obviously Under Armour. And so my brother kind of got inspired by him to become an entrepreneur and persuaded me not to go show up at Oak Tree, even though I had taken the job about a year in advance, kind of as one does when you're rolling off Goldman. Yeah. And uh, I was joking around. My brother and I were just young enough, just stupid enough at the time to think turning down our cushy finance jobs were a good idea to be <laughs> to become entrepreneurs. And uh, but certainly glad we did. And what was that idea? What did you jump into? Yeah, you know, I think I always tell people now, I think if any of us were leaving a place like Goldman or coming out of college, you just have access to so much more information and things. And so the ideas that people have are just so much more evolved. Mm -hmm. My brother had worked on the largest alcohol merger of all time while he was at Goldman, got exposed to the liquor industry and just saw white space in the liquor space. And so uh, you can imagine my dad was a little shocked when we said, we're both leaving Goldman. Carter's not going to go to Oak Tree and we're starting a liquor company. He thought to himself, man, I was doing so well as a parent <laughs> up until this, this phone call. And then where, where did it all go wrong? What so. was the response? I'm curious because like, I'm sure we all have that when you have you know, the sort of involved parents that are guiding and then you go take a complete curveball to them. Like how, how were your parents about it? Yeah. I mean, I was always very straight down the fairway, you know, my brother always pushed the edges. So I think they expected it from him. They're just kind of like, why'd you drag Carter into this too? But um, I think, you know, our parents were very supportive, but also realistic, right? And my brother always talks about how my dad's basic reaction was, you have no capital, no real skills, no real network. So let's just make sure you think about what you're doing. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, kind of try to lay it all out for us and then said, okay, if you're sure you want to go do this, let's then figure out, you know, what, how to give you the best chance to be successful. Nice. And so was he helpful? I, again, your dad being a businessman, was he helpful involved in some ways or kind of just coaching? Uh, no, just kind of mentorship. No. I mean, I think whether you're running a company that could be widgets or liquor yeah. or anything else, a lot of the principles are the yep. same, but really it came from just mentorship and support. And, uh, and he enjoyed watching us kind of figure it out along the yep. way. Kind of mainly. And so how'd that go? And tell me, what was the company name? I know, oh. obviously, but for, like, yeah, also. yeah. The, uh, the company was a, a brand called V. We basically kind of saw this white space around this concept of a better way to drink, kind of better cocktails, better ingredients, and kind of better for the world. The thought process was the big brands at the time were motivated to launch, you know, the 13th flavor of Stoli yeah. or something like that. And so they weren't innovating and they weren't creating brands that were resonating with people like you or I or, or my brother. And we just kind of figured it out as we went. Um, you know, most people are kind of going, how the heck did you go from starting and then successfully selling our liquor company, which we did five years ago, to becoming VCs? But I always talk about our journey has been a little unique in that now there's thousands and thousands and thousands of entrepreneurs. 
back when we started 15 years ago, there weren't that many great, well, there weren't that many entrepreneurs in general, right? And so, it, you know, I take take something like Summit Series, the Hotshot Entrepreneur Conference. Now it has thousands of people. You know, we went to the first one ever when it was 50 people and we got to know a guy named Jamie Simonoff and would see Ring Doorbell or Andy Dunn from Bonobos or we've been teaching at Harvard Business School, a case study on our liquor brand for about 10 years and have met a lot of great entrepreneurs there we've invested in. So for the while we had our liquor company, we were just trying to build that up. And when we sold it, we had it, you know, everywhere from cruise ships to Virgin America to Disney to TGI Fridays to Nobu, you kind of name it. And along the way, we're just kind of angel investing. And that's what led us to start M13 right after we, we sold. So I'm curious on that in terms of the angel investing, like you're running a company, obviously, I, liquor, I, maybe I'm wrong here, but generally doesn't have a massive amount of cash flow. Like what was compelling to you that you found it important to invest around you as you were working through your own core business? Like where did that come from? Because a lot don't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we were writing very small checks in the early days. I think what we, one of our theses is, and it's kind of, one of the theses we carried forward in kind of building M13 was we were better investors because we were operators and we were better operators because we were investors, yeah. right? One of the insights we had is seeing how others were building their businesses and in other industries was allowing us to be better operators because we were seeing what they were doing and trying to think about how does that kind of apply to what we're doing, et cetera, et cetera. And so for us, part of it was just kind of intellectual curiosity, wanting to support others, learn from others. And we found it was best to do so by angel investing rather than just kind of building up a network. Got it. And so you, and you sold, you said it was five years ago? Five years ago, And yeah. did you already know you wanted to sell that, start a VC fund or was there a gap in there? Like, tell me about, and yeah, tell me about that process. Yeah, yeah. About a year before we sold Vive, we realized that we would probably become investors after we sold our company. It was just something we enjoyed and, and we felt like we were good at it. You know, having seeded great names like Ring and Bonobos and Daily Harvest and a lot of great uh, companies that people know, Rothy's. And so we started thinking about how we were going to kind of institutionalize thinking about investing. And then we sold uh, Vive and started M13, I think about a month later. Yeah. And it was really with this thesis, you know, not how to build a better VC firm, but how could we build a different type of VC firm? And we're trying to think about our experience as founders, thinking about the type of investors we would have loved to have had. And then also thinking about where we invest specifically in kind of this horizontal layer of consumer technologies, kind of what trends were we seeing that led us to believe a new model was needed? And, and that's what would eventually become M30. And so taking a step back to Vive. It was a decade that you ran that, right? Yeah. And so what was, how, I assume it didn't, like you didn't go out the gate. It was successful, super easy. Like a decade's a long slog for a lot of people. So tell me about that journey. Like when you guys kicked it off, you actually, you had that advice from your dad that you, you know, you don't have the skills or the capital. <laughs> you started to go for it. Like what was surprising to you when you went out the gate? Yeah, I always tell people, you know, whatever success story you see, it's never up and to the right, right? The, the journey is always up and to the right, but it has a lot of hills and a lot of troughs along the way. You know, we started for the first year when we, once we had product for Vive, we delivered out the back of our Prius. Right. And we would literally go hotel to hotel, bar to bar in L.A. And whether it's dropping off the front door, the loading docks or things like that. 
And so one of the things we, we found that I always instill in entrepreneurs is we always, one of our hashtags is kind of respect the process. We were always big believers that if we were doing the right things, the right results would follow. And it was constantly about just figuring out what those right things to be doing were. And so, uh, yeah, there's, you know, you have a lot of ups, you have a lot of downs. I think the key for us is we used to always say we just needed to win more battles than we were losing. Yep. And we had to keep elevating to new plateaus, right? Get to a new plateau and then you have ups and downs, try to get to another plateau and kind of keep going along the way because the journey is long. At times it's lonely. You got to be able to take the ups with the downs, but you got to just keep kind of persevering all the way through to the end. Yeah. And so what were like those main pivotal points throughout? Like we all, I feel like you have those few points that you look back on and it was transformational. What was that for Vive? Yeah, you know, when it's kind of part of a lot of what you kind of how we build M13 is based on our experience as founders. And, and we did a lot of thinking, you know, in at M13, we've seeded or been in the Series A, I think now of 16 unicorns. And we thought to ourselves, okay, what do all those comp- companies share? How do they become unicorns, right? And it's not enough anymore just to have a great founder and a great idea. That's, you know, there's so much competition. And one of the things that we realized from our experience and then backing so many great founders was, we believe the most successful companies do two things well is one, they just make better day to day decisions where no single decision moves the needle, but a lot of decisions over a lot of time compound. And the second is along the way, you have these pivotal moments, like you mentioned, that kind of create step change growth, right? And it's not one, it's not two, it's a series of them that also compound, if that makes yep. sense. And so for us, it was everything from the first time we got an email through our generic inbox that Marriott wanted to carry the product nationally. It was the first time we were featured in the Sunday styles of the New York Take Times. Take a step back there. Did you think someone was messing with you when you just get a random Marriott email? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like my brother and I like looked at the email, I think a few years ago, and we're like, oh gosh, remember that email? I was like, holy crap. Like, I think Marriott, or maybe like, maybe this isn't Marriott. Maybe it's Marriott with three T's, four R's, you know, type of thing. And the key is for every founder, or at least was our experience, is to use those pivotal moments to give yourself a better chance at the next pivotal moment, right? And so we're always thinking almost in case studies. So how do you take Marriott and get Virgin America where we would be served on all their planes? How do you take the New York Times Sunday styles and get the next piece of press? But it's constantly building, right? It's brick by brick by brick, by brick, by brick. That's how you get there because we all celebrate and see these big raging bonfires of successful companies. But what I think most people fail to realize is very few companies start with, you know, lighter fluid and one match. And it's like, oh, great, we're good here, right? It's usually spark by spark by spark by spark. And eventually the sparks add up to this large bonfire. Yeah, totally fair. And so, okay, moving back into it, you get into venture. I'm curious, kind of the same question. You you start going to build this fund a month later. What surprised you? What was the curveball that you're like, oh, this is not what I expected, or was there one? Yeah, yeah so many, there's always so many learnings yeah. along the way. I mean, I try to balance. Nobody would ever accuse me of lacking confidence, but I also think I balance that with a high dose of humility, right? I always say, you know, you don't have to be an expert in everything. You just need to, to know an expert in everything. And I think one of the things that has served us well, and it doesn't stop today, right? It's constantly what we're doing is we just try to surround ourselves with the smartest people in different areas. And, you know, I treat my brain like a much 
less sophisticated version of the Facebook algorithm. And what I mean by that is I'm just trying to take in a ton of data points. And when I have a conversation with you like today, I'll learn one or two things. Those are not the data points for me, but they go into my brain as a data point. And then I start to see the patterns develop that that develop the data point. You go, oh gosh, four people gave me the same piece of feedback. Now that's going from a data point to the data yeah. point type of thing. And so for us, it's just constantly. And so, you know, we were fortunate. We just had so many great early conversations with people like Howard Morgan from first round. And he'd say one or two things that would inform our thesis. And then we'd go talk to somebody else. And so it was constantly kind of having our eyes wide open. And one of the things about M13 is we now have about 35 employees across our offices in New York and LA. And up until our 33rd employee, who's our director of community, we never had anyone that worked at a VC. People are going, that's crazy. You started a VC and it took you to 33 employees. But it was because we wanted fresh thinking and we wanted fresh perspective. And we didn't want to go, oh, this is what you did at your old firm. How do we do this better? We said, look, I've never been in an IC. So I have no idea what an IC is, right? So we say, huh, let me think about what an IC should be. We kind of whiteboard it out. But then, you know, we're not naive to think that how everyone else does it isn't rooted in a lot of history, if that makes sense. So we'll go talk to some of the smartest people we know in the investing community. A lot of those people are now in investors of ours and go like, how do you think about your IC? And so it's always a combination for us of fresh thinking with traditional thinking. And usually it gets us to a better spot in the middle of kind of new, you know, evolving. Well, that makes sense. I mean, it's the same reason startups are so powerful is you when you're not taking things for granted, like this is just how it's done. It's how you innovate. And same thing with venture. Like if you do everything the same as a Sequoia or A16Z, you're just going to be another Sequoia or A16Z and without their, you know, reputation and their deep pockets. So it's, yeah, it makes sense to innovate that way. Yeah, I think we were, to your point, like we were, I'm a big fan. I talk about it a lot in our book, Shortcut Your Startup, but I find the best companies, early days, they prioritize learning over growth until the moment in time where they've gotten the learnings. And then those companies grow exponentially while their peers grow linearly. And so, you know, we spent about two plus years kind of learning, tinkering, experimenting, knowing that when we were ready to scale, we could scale quickly. But I believe in our case and so many great companies' case, that allows you to exponentially grow. Kind of, again, you have to know, sometimes I use the old adage, sometimes you have to go slow in order to move fast. And so that's what we did, right? We just kept a very receptive and open mind knowing we were starting a VC firm. We had never started a VC firm, but had a growth mindset and just took our time kind of figuring it out until the moment in time, which was probably about two and a half years ago, we started scaling uh, much more quickly. And speaking of scale, so what was the first fund you guys raised? Uh, So our first fund uh, started deploying it in about 2017 and about $100 million. Okay. And did you find that money just from your connections easy to raise? Was that, uh, some people have different experiences there. Yeah. So now we're up to our third fund. Um, the first fund was primarily our capital. And then we were kind of doing uh, deals on a deal by deal basis. So that's okay. yep. And the reason we did that was we wanted to keep our capital flexible while we were figuring out the model, yep. at which point we would go raise a proper fund, which we did in 2018. 2018. So 
kind of very much by design. It was all about kind of how do we learn? How do we stay flexible until the moment in time we think we figured it and out? And how big was that second fund? Second fund was $200 million just over two years Got it. ago. And you've gone through most of that, it sounds like now, and now you're on your th- fund three? Yep, yep. We just announced a $400 million early stage fund three yep. a few months ago. Uh, super excited, I think, not only for N13, but I think what it means for all of LA to kind of, you know, I think there's a lot of great investors in LA. We don't have as much capital as some other markets. And so having a $400 million early stage fund, although we have offices in New York and LA, obviously LA is home base. LA is kind of where people think about M13. And so super excited for kind of the whole ecosystem. And same here. I think it's awesome for LA. What is your sort of investment strategy or thesis around this? Like, why do you guys, you know, the whole, the reason you do this, like you'd start any company, including a fund is because you think you have an unfair advantage of something or a niche or something that you're going to tax. So in your case, what is that for? M13. Yeah. So if I zoom out to zoom forward and answer your question, you know, we basically, as I mentioned, asked ourselves, what are the trends uh, that we're seeing that lead us to believe a new model is needed for the next decade or two in venture capital? And so we invest specifically in what we call the horizontal layer of consumer technology. So similar to technology, which used to be a vertical and now sits across every industry, we believe the same thing could be said for consumer technologies. And so because more and more companies can effectively disintermediate traditional distribution models and have a direct relationship with a consumer. So sometimes that's B2B to C. So something like Slack fits our definition of consumer tech. And sometimes that's directly to the C, whether that's Lyft or, you know, a food delivery marketplace like Shaft or Pinterest or things like that. And so we basically say kind of what are consumers going to be doing 10 years into the future in terms of how they work, how they live, how they spend money, what they eat, and how do we invest behind the technologies that power that change? And when we were thinking about it, you know, five years ago, we saw two trends that lead us to believe a new model was needed. The first was the complete democratization of the ability to launch new companies, right? So people forget when we seated Ring Doorbell, it was because Jamie was the only one with the only idea for a wireless doorbell. Now there's probably thousands of wireless doorbells, right? And so in every space we look, there's 10 or 15 companies all going after the same thing, all well pedigree. And everyone, when I say that, always violently shakes their head. Yeah, and go like, yeah, no shit, buddy. But that wasn't the case five years ago. Bonobos was the only one selling pants online. And now imagine how silly that sounds. So that has been a fundamental shift and the ability to launch new companies and how many companies are going after every idea. The second trend we saw was the difference between winning and losing has never been smaller, right? So I'll use a D to C that just because it's the easiest to quantify. The famous stat is a 1% difference in four e-commerce statistics is a 400% increase in sales. Compound that over 36 months and you're talking about a 5X difference in revenue, yeah. right? So a top quartile e-com company in year three will do 60 million in revenue. Second quartile, so still Dean's List, we're all, we all went to college, we'll do 12 billion. And so we basically said, gosh, you know, I believe the definition of entrepreneurship is being asked every single day to wake up and do something you've never done before. I just said there's never been more competition and the difference between winning and losing has never been smaller. It's tough to believe that I'm going to wake up every single day, ask to be do something I've never done before and be the best at it. And so we basically said, look, there's a fundamental shift happening in venture from designing and building a firm that's designed to uh, pick winners, which is great entrepreneurs and great ideas, but that's going to become table stakes. Yeah. How do you actually build a firm that's designed to make winners? And what we mean by that is how do we help these kind of founders execute better? Yeah. And, and so we basically said, look, let's create an institutionalized platform that acts as a flywheel where the bigger we become, our, the stronger our model becomes. 
to help these great entrepreneurs kind of execute better. And the last thing that I'll say is we still back tremendous entrepreneurs, whether it's Padma Warrior, who's on the board of Microsoft and Spotify with their company Fable, or Brian Norgard, who's the former chief product officer at Tinder. So still back in the best founders. But the insight was at Series C and beyond, these companies have these well-built out talent teams and data teams and operations teams and markets. But it doesn't matter how good you are at Series A, you don't have the capital to build out all these teams. And so at M13, we have 10 partners. Five of those partners wake up every day and find investable opportunities. Five of those partners wake up every day and they don't actually look for investable opportunities. They wake up and say, how do I help our companies execute better, right? And so everyone at our firm is an operator by trade, but they continue to actually operate. And so if you launched a big round, you might talk to Matt Hoffman, our partner at Talent, to sit down with them and figure out what type of culture do you want to build? What are the tech tools you need for talent? What's your kind of org design? Or if you're getting ready to launch a product, you might talk to Christine Choi for three weeks on launching in the media, your brand positioning and things like that. And so it's just this idea that, you know, I think in a world that's increasingly competitive, how do we bring these resources to bear to give the companies we invest behind uh, the greatest chance of success? And are you seeing many of the bigger funds try to do those kind of things? Or is it, I mean, because we, we do the same thing at Hawk Ventures. We invest in only stuff, as you know, the only stuff that are we can be a good partner to and be that catalyst to growth. But I don't see that that often from the venture community. I still see a lot of people that are just trying to pick good founders. Yeah, I think, look, everyone's talking in this way, but talking and doing is is challenging. I think one of the things we're most proud of at M13 is our MPS score with our founders is 91, right? And anything considered over 70 is considered world-class. Like we actually track, are we doing what we said we were going to yep. do? And, you know, we thought we had a unique opportunity because we figured that all the big firms would start talking like we do, but they're going to try to retrofit another, like an existing model. And that's always harder, right? Like they have 10 partners. What are they going to do? Fire five of those partners and bring five-time full-time operating partners. One of the things we did when we launched Fund 2 was we actually raised $15 million of incremental capital at the firm level. And so our management fees pay for our 10-person investing team, but we spend $5 million incrementally beyond our management fees using outside capital to build our propulsion platform, which is our tech layer, our data layer, and our team. And so that's one to your point. We wanted to say, look, no one else can have the team we have because, shoot, we spent $15 million to build it, right? And to have just shy of a billion dollars of AUM and have 35 people and 10 very senior partners is a ton of resources for that AUM. But we believe that we can generate funds that continue to be top decile by kind of having that model. And I think you you hit the nail on the head. Everyone says they're going to be value add. Very few are. And in a world where we created this model from scratch, we believe we have an outsized right to win versus a big firm that's going to have to retrofit their model. Makes sense. And so a couple more questions for you. Number one, what's next? Like, what do you, I know you don't look too far in the future, but what what do you see coming down the pipe? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're obviously just really excited to keep investing behind great founders. You know, our portfolio is kind of split between San Francisco, New York, and LA. I think we'll continue to be in innovative. Obviously, we're spending a lot of time in Web3, investing behind DAOs, you know, uh, tokens like Stepin, which has been a runaway success. We were one of the seed investors of that. And then I think we just want to continue to build M13 to be 
you know, one of the, if not the marquee name in LA and, and kind of one of the, generally speaking, the marquee names in the, in the country. So uh, we'll continue to raise new funds and we have so many great companies and fund too. You know, we already have two unicorns and so we'll probably continue to add some later stage capital so we can continue to invest behind all these great companies kind of as they scale and stay private longer. Makes sense. And so last question for me, you've worked with tons of founders and up and coming entrepreneurs. What would be your one piece of advice for someone wanting to pursue their dreams? whatever that may be, whether it's something you did hear growing up or something you didn't that you wish you did? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm a big believer that there's a shockingly high correlation between hard work and being a good human being and the success that that comes from that. And so I talk about being a good human being because I do think that's the other part of hard work. It's amazing how many people have done incredibly nice stuff for my brother and I along our journey when they didn't have to, but I think it's just because they liked us or wanted to help us. And then very specifically, one of the things we talk about all the time is I think all the best founders these days, they share this ability to have a telescope in one eye and a microscope in the other eye, right? It's this idea that we're living in a world that's moving fast with a lot of competition. You constantly got to have that microscope and be in the weeds and looking, but you constantly need to be zooming out and looking at a telescope and looking what's ahead. And so what I look for founders, it's who are those rare founders that can balance those two things? Because we all know a lot of founders who are really good in the weeds. We all know a lot of good founders who sit back in their ivory tower and spew strategy all day long. The really special ones are the two that can do both in my eyes. Amen. And yeah, I can say from, you know, a guy that's in the same scene, your reputation and everybody has high, uh, sort of a high opinion of you guys. So like with all the success you've had, you have not burned a lot of bridges. People do look at you as good people. So you're not giving BS advice there. It's advice you've taken. So appreciate it. man. I appreciate that. Well, awesome. Yeah. Carter, thank you so much for coming on Hawk Talk. Yeah. Thanks so much. Big fan. Listen to all the episodes. I appreciate finally getting the nods. So yeah, yeah, of course. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.